Well, welcome. It's good to have you with us here today. My name is Roger Rushing. I am one of the pastors here at New City, and it's my privilege to get to come and share with you today. We are finishing up our series, More Than Words. We've been in Proverbs for a little while, and next week, we start a brand new series uh, for Advent, which is crazy to me. I don't know if it snuck up on you, but it has for me. But it's a series you won't want to miss. It's what child is this? We're going to be asking ourselves, you know, who is Jesus? Uh, and really, what does that mean for us? And what does that mean for us in our world today? So you won't want to miss it. And if you uh, get a chance, grab one of those Advent guides. If you prefer a digital version, it's also on the app, so you can grab that too. But especially if you're going to be traveling, make sure you get that so that you're not behind uh, and you can stay up with us. But it's going to be a great uh, season of Advent that we're looking forward to. And today, we're going to take one more look at Proverbs. We had a long one today. Thank you for uh, sticking with Daniel through that as he read it to us. Uh, we're actually going to read it a whole other time together here, so prepare yourselves. But we're talking about prayer, and I, I am uh, excited to talk about prayer. I've, I've got a little two-and-a-half-year-old girl at home. She loves to pray. She prays all the time with us, uh, and she's a very grateful little girl. So she'll thank God for all kinds of stuff. Uh, she'll thank God for food, even if we're not praying for food at the time. She'll thank God for the dog and for my mom's dog and for my sister's dog. And every now and then she throws Joanna and I a bone, and we'll also thank God for mom and dad. Um, but for a while, there was a period of time where, regardless if she was praying or somebody else was praying, at some point she would work in her particular prayer for that season of her life, and she would pray, Dear Jesus, thank you for cheese. There was about a 90-day period where cheese was a really fundamental part. Uh, first service, somebody hooted that because, I mean, really, thank God for cheese. But that's how she <laughs> likes to pray. So we're going to be talking about prayer. One of the things I get to do here regularly at New City that I love, that's part of uh, my ministry here at New City, is I get to come and share the word with, uh, with our teens. Every week we have a service just for our youth on Sunday nights from 5 to 7 p.m., and I get to come and I share that teaching time with Mark Nelson, and we get to bring uh, teaching and, and just learn and grow with them as well. And it's a great time. One thing that we've been working on as we've been bringing the message, you know, it's a little bit more interactive, it's a little more informal. So lots of times I'll start by reading the passage and then even asking questions like, you know, what's weird to you about this passage? What strikes you or what concerns you? And we'll, we'll have some interaction about that. And I think that's always a good way to approach the scriptures. So I want to ask that today. We won't interact as much, so I won't put you on the spot. But ask yourself as we reread this proverb, you know, what's interesting to you about this? What concerns you? What strikes you? Looking back at Proverbs 15, 29, it says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. So I think that this is a very concerning passage. Uh, it tells us that God is far from the wicked. And I, I don't think this is far as far as like a geography problem, like God is over here and the wicked are over here. Obviously, God is all around us. The presence of God is here with us. The psalmist tells us that you can go to the highest height and God is there, and you can go even to the pit of death and God is there. So this isn't a geography issue. This is a relational distance. This is that, that distance between God and us. Uh, and it says that God is far from the wicked. This isn't the only proverb that talks about this. There's a ton of them. Just another example, we have Proverbs 21, 27, that says the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. That's an intense word. The, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? And it's not just Proverbs that talks about this. All through the prophets, we see this type of language. And especially troubling to me is a passage in Isaiah, beginning in chapter 1, verse 12. This is God speaking, and he says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Again, really intense language. 
They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. And then this is the most troubling part. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So God is far from the wicked, and he won't hear the prayers of sinners. If that doesn't concern you, it probably should. If it doesn't, let's look at this reminder in Romans chapter 3 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and God won't even hear the prayers of the sinners. So then we got to ask ourselves, where then is our hope? Because it sounds to me like things are pretty bleak. Because there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to move ourselves from the category of wicked to righteous, or from sinner to not sinner, right? There's nothing we can do. And Romans says, all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So where is our hope? Well, the hope rests in this one three-letter word that goes on in verse 24. Because Romans 3.23 doesn't end in a period but a comma. So reading it again, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then you get this glorious word, and. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. See, on our own, we have no right to enter the presence of God. And that's really what prayer is. Again, God's presence is always around us, but prayer is entering into God's presence with intentionality and in a different way. It's coming before the very throne of God, entering the throne room of the king of the universe. That's what prayer is. And on our own, we have no right to enter the presence of God. But praise be to God, we are not on our own. Hebrews 4 reminds us, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way, every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. So before Jesus, you always needed somebody to mediate the presence of God. Because the presence of God is this awesomeness. And sometimes I think we lose a little bit uh, of the sight of that, of just how, how overpowering and other and holy is the word for it. But this awesome overwhelmingness of the presence of God. So if you look in the Old Testament, you see like Moses mediated the presence for the Israelites. So God would speak through Moses and mediate that presence to the rest of the people. And then God raises up Aaron and the Levites to act as high priests to mediate his presence to the people. And you look at the temple, at the very heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the holiest place where God's very presence and essence rested. And it was a place that the high priest couldn't even enter into, except for one high priest one time a year, they could enter into the Holy of Holies. But even that high priest had to go through all this ritual purification and do all of this stuff to make sure that they were ready, that they were prepared, that their heart was in the right place, that they were purified before God so that they could enter into the presence. And even then, the other high priests, they would tie a rope around that guy's ankle. Because if it turns out that he missed something, or he overlooked something, or he was hiding something from himself or from God, when he entered into that overwhelming presence, the holiness of God would bring death. And then the other priests couldn't go in, right? So the only way to retrieve him is to pull the rope. That's how overwhelming and awesome the presence of Yahweh is. And yet, because of Jesus, we don't need that mediator, for he mediates for us. And we have this gift then to enter with confidence into the throne room. 
See, on our own, the only throne that we have available to us is the throne of judgment. It's not a place we want to be. But through the gift of Jesus Christ, by his grace and mercy, the throne of judgment becomes the throne of grace. So we have no right, but we do have this gift of Jesus. And with that gift comes a command. Not only, it's not like an optional thing. It's not just something like, hey, now you've got access to the throne room if you want it. You know, come if you want. We're actually commanded to come and to come with confidence, to come before the throne, to cast our cares on God because he cares for us. And so God calls us children and says, come to me as your father. Come before my throne. And then God, with that command, also comes a partner. For we have no right to stand before that throne on our own. But when we come before God in prayer, Jesus prays with us. I don't know if that struck you before. I don't know if that just is something like, okay, yeah, I get it. But think about it for a second. Jesus prays with us when we pray. He's present with us, interceding for us before that throne. So prayer is a gift, this great gift that we've been given. But prayer is also a discipline. Now, the problem with discipline is sometimes it, it kind of gets to be a little bit of a dirty word in church these days. What I mean by that is we recognize that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to earn God's salvation. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right enough. There aren't enough boxes for us to check in no way that we can check them to make it where God hears our prayers, where God says, hey, I don't have to turn my face from you or hide my face from you. There's nothing we can do on our own. And we recognize that the only way we have access to the Father is by the free gift of grace brought to us through Jesus Christ. And we understand that, but discipline becomes this way that we can kind of almost do this workaround. So it's like, okay, I can't, I can't do anything to save myself, and I can't merit that salvation on the front end. But now that I've been given it, I can kind of work it off, right? If I do good enough on the back end, I can deserve it, or I can earn it, I can become worthy of it. And so sometimes that's how we view discipline. It's really just another list of, of checkboxes. And so rather than putting it on the front end, we put it on the back end. But that's not really what discipline is, and discipline is not a dirty word. In fact, every single relationship takes discipline. Think back in your life to that best friend you had growing up, right? That one that as soon as something good happened, you wanted to share it with them. Or when something bad happened, they were probably already there right by your side, right? Think about that friend forever that you had. Some of you may still have that relationship. It may be just like it was back then. But for many of us, those relationships change or those relationships even fall away. People move, people have other people in their lives, maybe they get married, if you have kids, they take a ton of time, right? So you have all this stuff, all these jobs and responsibilities, all this other stuff that enters in. And you also make new friends. And so sometimes that friend forever that you had, that you were thick as thieves, that relationship falls away. Why? Because you didn't practice that discipline. You didn't make time. And it's understandable. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but this is just what happens. If you don't practice the disciplines of friendship, then those friendships wither. Same thing's true with marriage. Marriage takes work, right? Marriage takes discipline. If you're married right now and you don't think that that's the case, there are some big surprises coming for you. Because at the end of the day, if we don't practice and we don't practice those disciplines in our marriage, then that relationship too falls away. Take Joanna and I, and not only do we have a two-and-a-half-year-old, but we've got a little four-month-old now. He takes a lot of time figuring out this whole two-kid thing like we thought we had it. We don't. So date night has been something that's fallen away from us because it's really hard to leave a nursing, you know, two-month-old or something like that for very long. 
But as he's gotten a little bit older, now we're able to start leaving him. So we finally went on a date the other night, and we're reinstituting date night for us. And it's a discipline that we have to practice. Because we know that, you know, date night might randomly happen from time to time, about once every 15 years, right? But if we take that time, if we mark it on the calendar, then the busyness of life gets shaped around it. So we protect that time, we mark it on that calendar, we invest time, effort, energy, in this case money, not always money, but this one was money. And we do that because it's valuable, it's one of the disciplines of our marriage. It's not the only one, but we know that if we practice those disciplines, our marriage grows, and if we neglect those disciplines and we just expect it to kind of happen, chances are that that relationship too is gonna wither and there's gonna be difference, or distance. So our relationship with God also takes discipline. And it takes discipleship. Discipleship is that practice of continuing to surrender ourselves to God in ever-increasing measures and letting God shape and form us and build that relationship with God. And that's what discipleship is. But living a life of discipleship also takes discipline. Henry Nouwen, in his book, Making All Things New, says this, A spiritual life without discipline is impossible. Discipline is the other side of discipleship, And the practice of spiritual discipline makes us more sensitive to the small, gentle voice of God. From all that I said about worried, overfilled lives, it is clear that we are usually surrounded by so much other noises that it's hard to truly hear our God when he's speaking to us. We often become deaf, unable to know when God calls us, and unable to understand in which direction he calls us. Thus, our lives become absurd. In the word absurd, we find the Latin word certus, which means deaf. A spiritual life requires discipline because we need to learn to listen to God, who listen to God who constantly speaks, but whom we seldom hear. When, however, we learn to listen, our lives become obedient lives. The word obedient comes from the Latin word adir, which means listening. A spiritual discipline is necessary in order to move slowly from the absurd to an obedient life. The core of all prayer is indeed listening, obediently standing in the presence of God. So we've been given this gift of prayer. We've been given this access, the gift of this access to the throne room of God. Not only that, but we've been told to use this gift. And we understand that using this gift takes discipline. So our next natural question becomes, how should we pray? How do we do it? How do we go about making this discipline a part of our lives? The first thing that we need to understand is there's no formula for prayer. There's no set way to pray. That's not what we're going to get today. In a little while, I'm going to give you what I call some hints. But this is not like, got to pray this way, and if you pray this way, then everything works out, right? It's not a formula for prayer. So when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. It's really interesting. In Matthew, Jesus starts by teaching them how not to pray. So in Matthew verse <clears throat> 6, verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. What Jesus is talking about here is formula, because he's talking about the, Gentile, the Gentiles and the way that they would pray to their pagan gods. They had a ton of them, including Caesar. Caesar was one of the gods that they would pray to. In my research for this message, I found a, a prayer, an ancient prayer to Caesar, and it's really interesting. It doesn't start out like, dear God, Caesar. Instead, it goes on, and there are over 20, 21 different titles for Caesar that they use in the introduction. So it's like, dear, and they just start going. And in fact, they repeat some of them. It becomes over 30. I thought about listing them all out, but they're in Latin. I don't really know Latin, and I'm terrible at spelling in English, so I figured I wasn't going to spell it right in Latin. But it's just incredible. This is what Jesus means by heaping up these empty phrases. Because the idea was if you, if you butter up the God enough, right, if you flatter the God enough, 
I mean, you would hate to leave out a phrase. What if that was Caesar's favorite title or the other God's favorite way of thinking of themselves? You left that out. Well, you're out of luck. But if you could say it just right and get it all in the right order and all this kind of stuff, it almost becomes this kind of thing where then the God has to do what you want to do. But this is the way you earn the God's favor. And Jesus says, look, there's no formula for prayer. Not when you're praying to Yahweh, not when you're praying to God. But not only that, Jesus goes on to teach us that there's no sacred language for prayer. This might seem a little strange to us, it's just a no-brainer, but you think about in Jesus' day, Jesus was Jewish, his disciples were all Jewish, and even today, devout Jews, they have prayers that they pray three times a day, 18 or 19, depending on when and how you count them, but these prayers that they pray three times a day, but those prayers are always prayed in Hebrew, and sometimes we forget that Jesus didn't go around just speaking Hebrew all the time. The disciples and Jesus, their primary language was Aramaic. That was the language of the commoner, right? They probably knew enough Hebrew at least to pray the prayers in Hebrew. Most Jews at that time, that would be the Hebrew that they would know. Some, that might be the only Hebrew they knew. And sometimes they didn't even know necessarily exactly what they were saying. It's almost the equivalent of if you've ever been to a Catholic mass, it's all in Latin. Maybe that's something you grew up with and was even something you practiced. It might be that you're even able to say the words correctly. Uh, and maybe you know those words, but it doesn't mean you know Latin, right? But there's something about a sacred language, and most religions have a sacred language. But Jesus shows us there is no sacred formula, and there is no sacred language. One of the primary examples of this is found in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. This is a powerful prayer of Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's getting ready to be arrested and crucified and tortured, all of that stuff. And he says that he's troubled, his soul is troubled to the point of death. And so in that, he prays this prayer, and he starts out saying, Abba. We have an Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. But that Abba, that Abba is Aramaic. And the New Testament's written in Greek. There's only a few times that Aramaic is sprinkled through. And when they leave the Aramaic word, it's because it carries so much weight, and there's a theological importance to it. So they add this Greek word, Father, so that if you're reading it, you don't know what the Aramaic is. You understand, oh, he's saying Father. But Jesus says, Abba. Probably the rest of the prayer was in Aramaic as well. In fact, it's probably the case that Jesus, when he taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer, and he says, start by saying, Our Father, he probably continued both the Our Father and throughout in Aramaic. And it was groundbreaking, earth-shattering. It was not the thing that you do. It was almost seen as sacrilegious. But Jesus comes and says, there's no formula, and there's also no sacred language. You can pray to your Father in your language, in the language that makes sense to you. And the reason for this, the reason this is so important is because prayer is not a magical incantation that you just have to get right, nor is it a system that we can manipulate to get what we want. So you think about that Isaiah text and all that stuff that was going on, that people were going through the religious motions. They were doing these things that they thought would please God. And God was saying, look, what I want you to do is live after me, have my heart, take care of the vulnerable, the poor, the orphan, the widow. But instead, they thought they could live however they wanted to and even like abuse that group of vulnerable people and just build their lives on the backs of these people. And then if they prayed right, if they gave the right sacrifices, if they checked all the boxes, then they had God in a corner and he'd have to protect them. He'd have to do what, he's, what they wanted him to do. But God is, is wild. The wildness and holiness of Yahweh, God would come and say, look, that's not going to cut it. All that stuff, I hate that stuff. Just live after me. And so prayer is not a magical incantation that if we say it right and in the right language, we just get what we want. But prayer is relational. It's communing with God where we both speak and listen and through which we are shaped 
and reshaped into the image of God. Prayer is relational. In fact, prayer is friendship with God. And that friendship is not formal, but at the same time, it's not formless either. We do well to remember that we are entering into the presence of God who created all, who is beyond the scope of our imagination, whose overwhelming holiness we have no right to even stand before except by the gift of God, by the gift of Jesus. So we need to enter into this friendship, not with this formal, magical incantations or right language or, or formulaic prayers, but we also need to understand that what we're doing is weighty. So what I've got for us, again, is not a formula or a prescription of prayer, but I've got some hints for prayer. And we, I call it hints for private prayer, because there's a little bit of a difference between like this, which would be corporate prayer when we pray together in this place. There's something different about that. Some of it overlaps but I'm specifically talking about our own prayer lives, our private prayer lives, and the discipline of cultivating those prayer lives. So these are the six that I've got. Again, there's nothing like magical about this or specific about this. I'm not saying that you have to have all these elements or they even have to be in this area or in this order. What I will say is this has helped me. This is something that, I don't know about you, but prayer doesn't come naturally for me. Naturally, our hearts are bent towards selfishness, and prayer is that time where we're asking God to rebend us towards his heart, right? So prayer doesn't come easy for me. For some people, it does, uh, but it doesn't for me. It's not natural. It's not easy. It's something I have to work on, and this has been something that continually has helped me in my prayer life. So these are our hints. I'll go over each one, and then we'll talk about them, but it's silent self-preparation followed by thanksgiving, confession, intercession, petition, and submission. So the first one is that silent self-preparation. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, again, Jesus is teaching his disciples how not to pray. He says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The reason we want to prepare, the reason we want to take this step is because this isn't like any other friendship. And this isn't a time of communication that's like just our everyday type of communication. We should be careful not to rush into the presence. Understand this is not the kind of thing where like, I know none of you do this, but there are people who sometimes when you're having a conversation with them, they're texting or they're reading, you know, something, they're looking at Facebook and they're like, yeah, yeah, and it's kind of like half and half or... 80, 20, as far as our attention. That's not what this type of friendship and relationship is. That doesn't mean that we can't pray to God when we're doing other things. It doesn't mean that when you're driving down the road, you know, you have to take your attention completely off the road and pray to God if you're moved to pray at that moment. But it does mean that we should have these set-aside intentional times where we enter into a different type of communication with God. So we should be careful not to rush into the presence, and we should first prepare ourselves to focus our hearts and our minds on God. So here's some hints for that. Protect the time. You gotta protect that time. It's like I was talking about with our date nights with Joanna and I. It'll happen spontaneously and randomly, theoretically, at some point. But with the busyness of life, it probably won't happen as much as it needs to. But instead, we've got to schedule prayer time. And that might sound strange to you to schedule, you know, time with God who's always available to us and who we have this friendship with. But if we take time to schedule that time, it's it's not for God that we schedule, it's for us. It's to remind ourselves what we're doing. It's to make sure that we take that spot. And when we do that, when we schedule that time and we protect that time, it prevents us from doing things like, you know, if, if I've got an appointment on my calendar, let's say that, you know, 
Tim and I are having coffee, and then Jelaine's like, hey, can we go out and have coffee? And I'm like, oh, no, because I've got this appointment with Tim, right? That's something natural that we do. If we've written it on a calendar, we respect that time. But how often do we actually do that with our prayer? If I'm like, okay, I'm going to take the next hour, I'm going to try to pray. I know that's a long time. Next 15 minutes, I'm going to try to pray. And somebody calls up, and they're like, hey, I need this from you real quick. We answer that phone, right? We take that call. And then it moves us to the next thing and the next thing. And by the end of it, either we've missed that time entirely or we're just kind of giving the leftovers. But instead, schedule that time and in that, be consistent. There's all kinds of research that varies on how many days it takes something to become habitual. But all of them talk about the consistency of it, consistently doing it. And what would be the better habit to form than going to our God and developing that relationship and having that time of communal friendship with the Lord? What better habit could we possibly have in our lives? So be consistent. And then I would say, write it on your calendar. It's the only way that I can protect time sometimes for some things is to write it on my calendar. Or what I use a lot, even more than my calendar, is reminders in my phone, which sounds weird too. But set it as a reminder. Make sure that you know that this is happening. That that kind of visual cue, you can put post-its on your mirror or something like that. But whatever whatever it is that helps you remember, okay, this is happening. This is a priority for me and this time is protected. So write it on your calendar. If you don't, there's a good chance that other things you would write on your calendar will take that spot. So first part of preparation is protecting the time, but equally important is protecting the space. And what I mean by that is eliminating distractions. We have all these external distractions. Some of them we welcome and bring on ourselves, like having TV on in the background, or music, or going to the next thing, or staying busy. Some of them are imposed upon us, like you know, kids can do that a lot. They're super good at being distractions, or the needs of other people, which are, are all valid things. It's not that distractions are bad, but there's all this stuff clamoring for our attention. That next project at work, the next due date, the timeline, that next place we have to be, all of this clamors for our attention. And so just as important as protecting the time is protecting the space and learning to put those down. And as they come up, say, nope, not right now. But as we do that too, be prepared then when we eliminate the external distractions for the internal distractions. See, we often use outer distractions to shield ourselves from interior noises and chaos. I know I do that. I don't know if you do that. Probably do. But I'm really intentional about that. I constantly have the TV on in the background, even if I'm doing something else, or I've got music on, or really big for me, I have have trouble sleeping at night, I have insomnia, and what happens for me a lot of times is my body knows it's time to go to bed, but my brain's like, man, we got lots of stuff to worry about, so I'll look at the day and what I did or didn't get accomplished, or think about conversations I had or should have had differently, or if the day went pretty good, my brain's like, cool, no problem, we got lots of other days to worry about. So then I worry about all the stuff that's coming up and all the things I need to do. Then I start worrying about the fact that, man, I've got a busy day tomorrow. I should be asleep by now. And it just piles on, right? So most every night I go to bed listening to an audiobook or a podcast or something else that's distracting enough to drown out those noises, but obviously not interesting enough to keep me awake. Uh, but all the time I'm trying to shield myself from those distractions or with distractions. And when we eliminate those exterior distractions, then we have all that other stuff to face that we've been trying to hide from. And those interior distractions are difficult too. But when we remove our outer distractions, we often find that our inner distractions manifest them to us in full force. There was an early Christian writer who said it this way. It's like a man who would just entertain guests all the time. He had an open door. They would just walk in. He was always hospitable and welcoming, and he'd welcome the guests no matter what. And then he decides one day to start protecting that time and that space, and so he closes the door and locks the door. It doesn't mean the guests don't come. The guests still come, and now they try the door, and it's locked. 
They don't just go away. They start knocking. They start calling out. They pound harder. And it takes practice and discipline and repetition to get to a point where the guests come to understand, hey, not right now. This isn't the time that you're welcome. But after we've done that self-preparation, now it's to begin the actual movements of prayer. And I suggest that we start with thanksgiving. Psalms 100 verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. So here's some hints for this. First, be specific, especially, again, in private prayer. In corporate prayer, we often thank for general things, and that's okay. And it's okay in private prayer to thank for some general things, too. But it really helps us if we can get some hooks in there and if we can thank for specific things. Think about what God has done, is doing in your life. Think about all the gifts that he's given you and begin to thank him for them. And as you do, don't just focus on circumstantial gratitude. Do you know what I mean by that? That's like the things that make today a good day. So I am late to everything. And so when I hit all green lights, that is something I thank God for. That is a good thing, right? When things are going good, it's good for us to praise God for that too and to thank God for those circumstantial things. But the problem is those circumstances change. And if that's the only form of gratitude, then when those circumstances change, we don't know how to be thankful in a time of suffering. It's foreign to us. We don't know how to be thankful in difficult times. And yet we can be so thankful because even in those, those depths of despair, God is there, right? And we know that God can bring us through those things. And God has given us life and life abundantly. So even on those days that circumstantially aren't great, we are still redeemed by God, redeemed by Jesus. So we have so much to be thankful for. In, in this, also take your time. Don't rush through it. Because if we do, it's really easy for us to turn this all into checklists again. So if you're like me, if you rush through this, you'll have like your top three things that you thank God for all the time. And it just becomes this motion you go through. It's like, boom, 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 done, next, right? But take your time. Leave space. Silence is not your enemy. Remember that this is a conversation. Allow that space even for God to show you some of the gifts that maybe you don't recognize or to show you the impact of some of those gifts and to open your eyes to some of that. And then I don't know if you prayer journal or not. This might be a strange practice for you to try if you don't, but write them down. And the big reason for writing them down is because it's so easy when circumstances do change and we kind of enter into those dark places and things aren't going so well. It's so easy for us to think that, that that's the way it's always going to be. Like we're doomed now or something like that. And not only that, but we can falsely rewrite our history and be like, oh, it's always been this way. Or maybe we remember that one time that God was there, but now God feels so distant right? And it just seems to change. But when we write it down, we can go back and we can look and see, oh, this isn't the first storm I've been through. Turns out God has brought me through many storms. And we can look at those and read those and remember the history of God and know that God is with you in that storm and he's going to bring you through this one too. The Israelites used to practice this all the time. You read the Old Testament and when they were going through times of difficulty or they were getting ready to face something that was bigger than them, it always started with these speeches where they would remember who God was and what God had done. They would say, remember the God of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And almost always the next thing out is, who brought you out of Egypt? So no matter what storm you're going through now, no matter how big this seems, remember Egypt? It was a place of hopelessness and death. And your God brought you out of Egypt. And that wasn't the whole list. They would keep going. Read the Psalms over and over again. It recites what God has done. And it's in that place of God, I don't know how you're going to get me out of this, but I do know that you are faithful. So write them down so that you have that record to go back for because sometimes our, our history can be really selective in those times of difficulty. 
from Thanksgiving, we move into confession. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First hint, be specific. You might notice a pattern in just a moment. But be specific. Now, I don't know about you, but I am way more comfortable being specific about the things I'm thankful for than about my sins. I would much rather be general. God, forgive me for my sins. Like, God already knows them anyway, right? So I feel like that should just cover it. God, forgive me for my sins. But we need to be specific. We need to be able to come and say, God, forgive me for the way I sin against this person. Forgive me for being judgmental. Forgive me for judging them when I shouldn't have. Forgive me for the time that my anger got out of hand and I acted out of anger instead of love. Forgive me for that time that I was prideful. That one comes up for me a lot. But forgive me for that time that I was prideful, especially when I built myself up by putting somebody else down. It can be really hard, but it helps us to, to recognize the, the specifics of our sins and help us to remember where those shortcomings are and, and where we need God's grace to make up for our failures. But in that, we also need to be honest. And in that honesty, what I mean is that we need to, to root those things in fact. It's easy for us to kind of blow it up and it become a time where we just kind of beat ourselves up. But that's not what confession is supposed to be. Confession should not be ruthless. It shouldn't excuse us either, but it should always be rooted in fact. See, when we take confession, we take our sins, and it becomes this way of punishing ourselves, then what we really do, if you don't realize it, what we're really doing is we're making ourselves a god again. It's another form of idolatry. Because what we're doing is we're saying, hey, you know, God, I know you forgive sins, but it's like you do it too easily. So thanks for forgiving me for the sin, but I don't forgive myself yet. I've got to hurt a little bit more. I've got to pay a bigger price. I've got to suffer. And what we're doing is we're putting our forgiveness above God's. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. When I do that, I'm saying, God, I'm in your place. And God is saying, look, I give this forgiveness to you. And so we need to not over-focus on our sin because over-focus on our sin becomes morbid and it becomes that way of self-punishment. But we also have to be careful not to under-focus because that leads to indifference and decay. Those are the times where we're just like, oh, God, God forgives it anyway. Like, hey, God, like, I, I know I did this thing. I'm sorry. Forgive me. But it cheapens the grace, and it does so in such a way that eventually it gives life to that sin, and that sin keeps growing, and then that's where we have this problem where, you know, we're called to abide in God. We're supposed to be like vines who are hooked to the branch. I mean, we're branches hooked to the vine, and we get our life and sustenance from it. And if we separate ourselves from that, eventually we're going to wither and die. And so then we find that place where we're like, man, God feels so far away. He's abandoned me. No, he hasn't. I've abandoned him because of my indifference and the decay in my life because of a lack of focus on that. So we must seek that appropriate balance in the honesty of our confession. And then step three is a huge one. Now we accept God's grace. The wise prayer of confession always leads to an acceptance of God's grace and pardon. See, when we come to confess to God, we come with open hands, bringing to him our shortcomings that we leave there with him. And then with those same open hands, we accept the free grace that cost him so much, but that he gives us so freely. If we don't get to step three, then we're going to pick that up, and in doing so, we're going to give it new life. And we're either going to foster that idolatry that I know better, or we're going to continue to take that sin with us and breathe new life into it and let it continue to separate us from God. So step three is to accept God's grace. Once we've moved through confession, then move into intercession. Intercession is that time that we pray for others, right? Again, we want to be specific. And the reason is because love sees faces and not masses. And for us, intercession requires us to bear on our heart the burden of those for whom we pray. 
it's really hard to bear the burden of a mass. It loses its face, right? But when I see the face in my eyes and I know who I'm praying for, my heart can break for them like their heart is breaking. I can enter into that place of suffering, and that's the sacred duty of intercession is to help bear that burden and to let those things impact us too as we pray. And it's natural for us in our intercession to pray for our families and our friends, uh, maybe even our coworkers or some stranger that came up to us and asked us to pray. And those are good things. Do those too. But the one I've highlighted here is pray for your enemies. That's a difficult one. Pray for your enemies. And if you get to this point, you're like, I don't have any enemies. Take a minute. Maybe revisit the confession portion because there's a good chance you've got somebody that you don't want to necessarily call an enemy, but you've made them an enemy. And if not, think about, would anybody call me an enemy? Maybe pray for them, right? But pray for our enemies because when we do, it becomes very difficult for us to harbor that resentment and that bitterness because when we just see them, we flatten them down and just their wrongs and the way they've hurt us. But when we intercede for them and we actually pray for their good too, we begin to realize that they are sinners just like we are. And just as we've been given grace, so have they. So pray for your enemies. Then this one, it might just be here for me. I know this because I tried to delete it like 12 times. But pray for your literal neighbor. And this is the part that's hard. Because if you don't know how to pray for your neighbor, then you probably don't know your neighbor. And the first step to praying for your neighbor is to know how to pray for your neighbor. So if you don't know how to pray for your neighbor, you probably don't know your neighbor, and it's time to get to know your neighbor. And I'll confess right now, there are too many of my neighbors that I have no idea how to pray for them. I mean, I see them, I might know their names, we interact when we're walking to the mailbox, everything's pleasant and happy. You know, if their house was on fire, I'd try to help. But I don't know how to pray for them because I don't really know what's going on in their lives. So pray for your literal neighbor. And then here's the other tough one. Be open to being part of the answer. We know that we're not the answer, but here's what we do with prayer sometimes is we try to outsource it. We're like, okay, God, you go help. God, you go do this. And sometimes what God is saying is, man, I'm so glad you brought this to me. I've been trying to bring it to you for weeks. And I'm like, no, 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 God, I did my part. I prayed. It's like, go help them now, right? But God's, God always is looking to use us too. And so we can't always be a part of the solution in our intercessory prayers, but a lot of them we can. And sometimes God is trying to say, I'm so glad you brought that. I want to help them through you. Go and be my hands and my feet. So we can't just outsource it and go, oh God, there's all these problems, take care of it, without being willing to take that space again for that conversation, for God to say, good, here's a way that you can go and be part of that answer. Then we get to petition. Petitions where we ask for ourselves, Right? And I know I said that this order isn't set in stone, it's not magical or anything like that, but I would be really cautious about moving this one. Flip the others around, be really careful about moving petition, especially if you're moving it very far up the list. And the reason why is because this is the easiest place for our selfish mind to encroach on our prayer time. It's really easy to come with what we want. And we should come with what we want. God has asked us to come with our cares and our concerns and to bring those things before him. But the problem is I am so bent towards selfishness and that's so normal for me that if I don't do this other pre-work, if I haven't prepared myself, if I haven't recognized what God has already given to me and continues to give to me, if I haven't confessed the fact that God gives me so much and all I bring to him are my shortcomings, and if I haven't then taken that grace and exchanged my shortcomings for that grace, and then brought the needs of others and recognized their pain and suffering, if I haven't done all of that pre-work, my heart is probably not in the place to do the petition. 
But when we do that pre-work, it helps guard against that selfishness. So once we do it, be bold. Philippians 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, God wants us to take our cares to him. Our Father wants to hear our concerns and the cares of his children. So be bold in bringing it. The problem isn't bringing our concerns. The problem is that when I bring my concerns and I bring the things that I want to God, if it doesn't match up with his will, what I want him to do is to conform his will to mine. And that's where the problem is. But if we bring our concerns and our our will to God and we're willing to conform our will to his, then be bold. And when we do it, we can trust God. See, going to God with our cares and worries is an exercise in trust. And we can go to God because he is faithful and trustworthy. He has a great track record. So we can bring those things to him. And finally, the third one is ask these things in Jesus' name. There's lots of places that talk to us about this. The problem is we can kind of misinterpret some of these scriptures a little bit. And one of those that we can do that with is John 14, 13. This is when Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, whatever you ask, ask in my name. This I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. But see, asking in Jesus' name, it's not, it's not magical or manipulative. It's not just another way of backing God into a corner. It's not like it can be like, God, help me win the lottery. In Jesus' name, I said it, boom, where's my check? Like, it doesn't work that way. It's not that magical incantation. It's also not just the way we sign off. It's just not just like, best regards, Roger, right? But what, another way to say it is that it would be asking in the nature of Jesus. Asking in his nature. See, when we align our will with God's, then the petitions that we bring to God will be in line with the nature of God, the nature of God that we see in Jesus. And look closely at verse 13 again of chapter 14 in John. It says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? That the Father might be glorified. So there's a really good indicator that if the answer to our prayer doesn't bring glorification to the Father, it's probably something that needs to be realigned in what we're asking for in God's prayer. And also, workarounds don't work here either, where you can be like, well, if I won the lottery, I'd tithe a lot, and that would bring glory to God. That's not the way it works either. We have to have that honesty. So after we've done all these things, I think that the most important place to land is on submission. When we go back to Mark chapter 14, verse 36, that prayer of Jesus in the garden again, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And then Jesus says, remove this cup from me. The cup of suffering and death that he was about to drink for you and I. He says his will clearly. He says, Father, remove this cup from me. But in the same breath, he says, yet not what I will, but you will. See, if we miss that part of submission, then all the other stuff, it's worthless. This is where it becomes empty phrases and noise. And when it gets really bad, trampling the courts and things that just burden God. But when we come and we end in that place of submission, not my will, but yours. Don't bend to my heart, but bend my heart to yours. This is the heart of all true prayer, to submit our own selfish will to the Father. So these are the hints for prayer. They've been helpful to me. I hope they're helpful to you. We're going to close in prayer in just a moment. We're going to do things a little bit differently. If you're used to coming to New City, a little bit differently. I'll walk you through it in just a second. But after we pray, the band's going to continue to lead us in worship. As they do, I invite you to these tables that are in the front and the back. 
We have the cup and the bread at these tables that represent the blood of Jesus shed for us and the body of Jesus broken for us. And it's that place where we can come again and recognize this gift that we've been given to enter into the very presence of God. And we can recognize this grace that costs so much that is in no way cheap and yet is freely given to us. So I invite you to those tables to receive that today. We also have our offering boxes in the back or you can give online on the app. I think you can even text to give uh, if you want to support the mission of, and life of New City in that way. But as we go to prayer today, what I want to do is I, I'm going to have a stand, if you're able, and I'm going to open in prayer, but I think it's only fitting today if we close in the words that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the Lord's Prayer. So as we do, as we stand, if you're comfortable, if you know the words and want to say along in that prayer, voice that out loud, I encourage you to. If you're not sure about the words or you're just not comfortable with it, listen to the words. Let that prayer be the prayer of your heart and let it sink in. So if you would, please stand with me now as we pray. Father God, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that you hear our prayers, that you made a way to cover the distance between us and you that we put there with our sin. God, we recognize that we are not worthy, but by the grace of the gift of your son, Jesus, you have asked us to come before your presence, come with confidence and boldness. Jesus, we thank you for being our partner in prayer, for interceding with us. We pray that you would continue to bend our hearts to you, that we would continue to submit our will to yours. And Lord Jesus, today we pray in the words that you taught your disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.